Welcome to Sam Watches Star Trek, Monkey Off My Backlog's second weekly podcast where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. I would like to be referred to as Lens Flare for this episode. <laughs> this week we are discussing Star Trek, the 2009 film directed by J.J. Abrams and written by Roberto Orsi and Alex Kurtzman. So we discussed this last time when we talked about Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Paramount had been toying with the idea of a prequel or an origin story where we reintroduced younger versions of these characters straight out of the Academy for a while. But at the time, Gene Roddenberry wasn't interested and neither were most of the cast. It took, what, Undiscovered Country came out in 91? So it took almost almost 20 years before they decided to actually do it, to give it to J.J. Abrams, who was interested in rebooting this series, according to interviews with him. He saw cinema going down a grittier path with things like Chris Nolan's The Dark Knight trilogy coming out, and he wanted to kind of give us a counterpoint to that with the optimism of the original Star Trek. It's sort of a reboot, but it's also sort of its own thing. We'll talk about that a little bit. Paramount decided to greenlight this because you haven't seen either of these yet, but both Star Trek Nemesis, which is a Next Generation movie, and Star Trek Enterprise, the series, were both pretty much considered critical failures, and they were also commercial failures. So it seemed like they were ready to reboot the series and to return to characters that they knew that people really liked. I think it's interesting that in this case, Star Wars and Star Trek have done the opposite thing. Star Wars was always supposed to be a cinema franchise. And as it turns out, the TV ventures have been the only thing to keep it alive. You know, with the rise of Skywalker being really, really bad. But as bad as the people think the Book of Boba Fett is, which... I don't think it's that bad. I think there's a reason they wanted to hard pivot back to Mandalorian 2.5 is what people call it now. I think that was purposeful. And I don't think it's as bad as people do. Which I think we've actually heard about Enterprise, right? We've heard people say it's not as bad as people say it is. Right. But I think this is interesting. The... You know, Star Trek is a TV show that has also done movies. And Paramount's best idea was to enroll J.J. Abrams in the Academy, if you will. And it's funny because, you know, if they just waited a few years, Paramount Plus would have come along. And I think what they've done now is a really, really good way to re-energize a TV show. And it's funny that Disney Plus has done the same thing to re-energize a movie franchise that has flailed. And because I know you're interested in these sorts of things, Star Trek 2009 was nominated for several Academy Awards, four of them to be exact, and it won Best Makeup. This is the first Star Trek film to win an Academy Award. So just very briefly, this film reintroduces us to Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and the crew as young cadets straight out of the academy. When the planet Vulcan is attacked by the Romulan time traveler Nero, Kirk must take control of the Enterprise and they all must grapple with what might have been. 
So you had seen this film before, is that correct? Yes. When did you see it? And what were your initial thoughts on seeing it? Because I know you hadn't seen much Trek. So with J.J. Abrams, this is post-alias, post-lost. I'm just going off my memory and saying that the reveal that he was reviving Star Trek came after Super 8. I could be wrong about that, but in my head, that's how it went. And so on paper, it definitely seemed like J.J. Abrams would be the best person to do this story. I certainly thought so. And the reason that I watched it, even if I wasn't a Star Trek fan, was J.J. Abrams. As you know, I kind of like the stuff that he does, or at one time I did before he got the other. And in fact, by the way, I was so thrilled. So many people were so thrilled when he got handed Star Wars because, and we're going to talk about this, I am sure, he brought an aesthetic to Star Trek that is Star Wars, not Star Trek. He made it work, I think, in this movie. But when it was announced that he was going to do Star Wars, it was, okay, great. Just do what you did for Star Trek for Star Wars. And I don't know why he didn't. So that's what brought me to it. So this is the second time that you've seen this movie. Yep. But now you've seen... Yeah, now I get the joke. Yeah, I was going to say, now you've seen a lot of the show and the films. What are your first thoughts coming back to this film after exploring the original series and the film series? I don't know a lot about Kurtzman and Orsi other than they are you know, two of the big people behind the resurgence. I mean, probably really even more than J.J. Abrams is. My overall reaction to the movie is it's fine. It's fine. It's serviceable. It is not a movie that is greater than the sum of its parts, but that doesn't mean it's bad because it isn't. What it is good at, I'm going to say this, and I know you're probably going to hate it, and I know other people are probably going to hate it, with the exception of Zachary Quinto, who I like and bears an uncanny resemblance to Leonard Nimoy. This new cast is a great reimagining, but also simultaneously an embodiment of the old cast. I think Quinto is just doing a Nimoy impression. The others are all bringing new life to these roles. I like that. Knowing what happened after number three and the fact that they didn't just want to pay up to these people who were doing this work, which is ridiculous. So that was one of the big strengths. The other big strength is the references. This was clearly created by people who knew that original series and probably the films pretty well. So I don't give J.J. Abrams credit for this movie knowing everything that I know now. It's Kurtzman, Orsi, whoever else. Whoever the casting director is. Well, Kurtzman and Orsi and whoever contributed to the script. And then the casting director who brought these people in. And again, I don't have a problem with Quinto. I just don't think he's doing 
he's doing something different, which is also fine, but it doesn't, you know, Star Trek fan service doesn't work for me because I'm not a fan who needs to be serviced. The references are neat when they're well done references. I don't need winky references because that's nothing to me. Right. Well, since you started talking about the cast, let's go there first. What did you think of each individual recasts besides Quinto, since you've already right. given our your opinion on Quinto? And, and I mean, it's it's super obvious with him in this movie because Nimoy is in it. Right. You can see it's like, yeah, you really are just doing that. And I mean, right place, right time to be somebody who looks just like Leonard Nimoy. Right. And, and can, I mean, good for him. Although, Nobody's saying anything about although that. Although, to be fair, I watched Heroes, and that was my primary... Oh, me too. That was my primary engagement story. with Zachary Quinto at the time. And so when he was announced, I was a little like, what? Yeah. Siler's going to be Spock? And like, to be fair, there were a few times when I originally watched it that I was like, okay, like, it's really weird that he's actually managed to play this other character so well. And of course, now I know it's because he's a great actor, but... Yeah. Yeah. There okay. was a little bit of like, ooh. Like- <laughs> all right. So that's that's all I got there. Yeah. Chris Pine. Okay, let's talk about Chris Pine for a second. Again, I am not the monkey off my backlog co-host that knows things about box office. And I, for that reason, I certainly don't know box office to salary comparisons. I don't know how much Chris Pine was paid for the Wonder Woman movies. If he was being paid less for those movies than he was for star trek that's one thing but if dc and warner brothers is paying him more than he got for playing kirk there should have never been any whining about these people's salaries because you know we we joke we have a lot of fun about how chris pine is the the leftover chris right i mean he's not the most offensive chris so that's something This is the Chris that, you know, a lot of people leave out of the conversation when we have memes about Chris's in comic book (laughs) movies. As far as uh, Steve Trevor goes, that's fine. He's good in this. I like this. I don't miss Shatner at all. So that's my other question about this character, because obviously Shatner made this character and Shatner's version of this character is the iconic version of the character. But like you said, Pine isn't doing a Shatner impression, which I think is to his credit. What parts of this character do you think he is making his own versus what parts do you think pay homage to the original? I mean, so the obvious point of comparison is uh, Aaron Reich. I can't remember what his first name is. Starts with an A. Solo, right? Which is a very wooden reimagining of Han Solo and since Harrison Ford is an especially wooden actor to begin with we're like doing carpentry instead of acting here (laughs) is it Alden Ehrenreich I don't know I mean I think to me this is the obvious point of comparison is thinking about that movie to this movie since I always do Star Trek to Star Wars comparisons Chris Pine on the other hand is taking a very wooden again characterization i mean shatner and harrison ford are not very physical actors which is weird when you think about the roles that they've actually played (laughs) chris pine moves 
there's a physicality to that character that there should have been. There should have been that physicality all along, and there wasn't, and now it's there. And it's like, this guy was... I'm not going to say he was made to play Kirk, but I'm not going to not say it either. I think Chris Pine, given enough time with the character, which is, again, the great tragedy of what happened after three, even if we do ultimately get four, he should be able to spend time with this character because, yeah, it'll always be Shatner's character, but I'm not convinced he couldn't do it better. Would you watch a Kirk miniseries with Chris Pine? Just like I said. As yeah. I said, yeah, he would be. It would be totally appropriate to that fictional Kirk series that I've been talking about. It would be absolutely appropriate to have Chris Pine play that at any point in the timeline. What did you think about Carl Urban as McCoy? You know, who at times sounds a lot like DeForest okay, Kelly. Okay, I'm just gonna tell you, there's a there's a very clear subset of fangirls on the internet. Who love Carl Urban. I don't understand them. <laughs> but this is also a role that Carl Urban just, you know, unlike Kirk, you really can't replace DeForest Kelly. <laughs> but Carl Urban's doing his best. There were times where I would close my eyes when he was talking, and I'm like, he is doing yeah. a solid so, DeForest Kelly voice. So this is the way to think about what Carl Urban does in this role. Carl Urban's probably a delightful fellow i don't know but the way he's playing bones which by the way fun origin story there um <laughs> the way that he's playing bones is you would think that he has woken up on the wrong side of the bed every single day of his life he's always grumpy until one day when he actually does wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you realize that the grumpy man you've come to know was positively cheery on those days. That's the feeling that I get from Carl Urban. Like this, it's, it's great. I want to be friends with him. <laughs> I have feelings about the way that this trio works in this movie and in the subsequent film Into Darkness, which we'll talk about next week. But... I actually think that Chris Pine and Carl Urban have more chemistry than Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto do. Well, I think that goes back to the fact that Quinto is doing something fundamentally different. His assignment was different because of the presence of Nimoy in the movie. And I have to say, I don't like this. I don't like the Spock story. I don't like that he's such a dick. Spock? Yeah, I don't. I mean, like, it's... Oh, you mean the Zachary Quinto spot? Oh, yeah. Not the Leonard Nimoy spot. Okay. I mean, that's the thing. And, but and wasn't sp- he kind of a dick well, at the beginning of the original series? Sure, but that's not what we're doing because it's not the same guy. Right. right? But this would be a, approximately the same time in his career. Yeah, but the branching timelines have given you a that's completely true. different person. And so I, I don't think so. I think the point here is to create as big of a juxtaposition as possible between the Spock from the OG universe who at the end of his life has embraced that it's it's almost a true 50-50, which we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. For somebody who's 50% human, he sure beats himself up for ever showing humanity. Right. But So I know that's what they're trying to do. That was the assignment. That was the prompt. 
Zachary Quinto followed the prompt. It was a bad assignment because what it did was it did not allow the core three to be anything that you might believe is a thruple. That's the other thing I told you during this movie is that the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, and again, I'll have to rewatch two, and I've never seen three, so that's going to be a really interesting episode. But the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, the Kelvinverse, feels fundamentally less queer to me than the original series does. Oh, yeah. I mean, not just with the Spock and Kirk relationship, just in general. It feels a lot more straight. So I think what you're describing as more straight is actually what I would call the default setting. You'll notice. So J.J. Abrams directed two of both trilogies. Now, Star Wars, you'd have to try really, really hard to come up with anything in the original Star Wars trilogy, the prequels, Force Awakens, that you could describe as queer in Star Wars. It wasn't until somebody else took over that you started getting queer vibes. Well, actually, that's not true. Everybody shipped those two dudes at the end of Force Awakens. That's true. That's true. Of course, that's why J.J. Abrams had to work so hard to retcon it, apparently, because he hates joy. We'll talk about that in December. Anyway, the point is, I don't think J.J. Abrams knows how to do that. At best, he knows how to do very straight romance. You think about... Uh, I, I, I hesitate to talk about lost because i don't think that's very indicative i think that's more other people now if you go back to alias which you haven't seen you know the the romances in that are very straight if you go back to felicity and you know her will she won't she times two speedman comes across more queer and gray's anatomy than he does in felicity (laughs) abrams doesn't know how He doesn't know how. That's the answer to the question. That is, I've rambled on long enough. He doesn't know how to make it queer. And so he defaults. But it's so weird because the original series, even taking aside the romances and if Spock and Kirk are in a relationship or whatever, it just feels more queer than this. I don't disagree with you. uh, The the costumes, the settings, all of it feels very queer. Isn't that just the 60s, though? I I mean, that could be true. The point is he had the material for it, and he kind of... He doesn't lean into it in a way that I think he could have. Now, I want to make it very clear that when I say that this feels very straight to me, what I am not talking about is the relationship between Uhura and Spock in this movie, because let's not be biphobic. That's crap. I I know. I know you hate that relationship, (laughs) but let's not be biphobic. You can have somebody be queer and be in a relationship with someone of the opposite gender. Well, uh, okay. Like, I, I say that because there were a lot of biphobic responses to this relationship, yeah. but you can also hate this relationship, but not for queer phobic reasons. I forgot that it existed until <laughs> you reminded fair. me of that. I mean, why would you, you care about the relationship no. between these two characters if you hadn't seen the rest of the show? Okay. Here's the thing about the queerness though. It, it was the sixties. There are a lot of other contributing factors, but to say that anybody on the original series was purposely trying to affect queerness, I think would be a wrong thing to say, a very just incorrect thing to say. Except for maybe decay? Well, sure, but 
Wouldn't you think it's more likely that Decay is trying to straighten up and failing? Right. I mean, that's fair. So, I mean, which good for him. The point is, all of the various things that combined in a very particular way to create a series that was so queer accidentally (laughs) could not possibly be replicated. That's why you people... Love the queerness in the original series. I mean, I don't hate it. I'm just saying there's a really big love for it. And it's not something that could have been made on purpose, especially on network TV in the 60s. It was an accident. That's what makes it so special. I am aware of that. It would almost be worse if they had tried to replicate it. Well, you know? yeah, I mean, and they do try. I, I don't know if it's I don't I didn't actually notice it in this movie. I think it's in a future movie that they confirm that Sulu is gay, which is supposed to be a nod to yeah. Decay's sexuality. But that seems to be the only nod to gayness in this yeah. So, series. Yeah. John Cho. I'll just say up front and then not acknowledge it again because I don't care about it. It's relevant. It's harmful to people's lives, but it's not a factor here. I mean, Asian American men are very often not seen as masculine. John Cho does not have this problem. Not that it's a problem for anybody, but I don't think, you know, like Simu Liu, it's kind of like, well, here's your, what, right? you know, here's your case for why that's not true. If you want to engage with that argument, which I don't. Which is a bad faith argument. Well, right. Exactly. Which is why you shouldn't do it. To talk about him inhabiting Sulu. And of course, we got the oh my. That was fun. <laughs> that was fun. That's kind of one of those and the things. the sword. He has a sword. Yes. Which is a reference to the naked time. But he's not trying to impersonate Takei. Oh, Because that would look terrible. That's what I'm saying. Trying to replicate... Something like Takei's performance, which is just so singular, would end up looking like a effeminate gay caricature. And I'm pretty sure John Cho would have never signed off on that. Right. So I like his his character that is very it's almost like he's he's the fourth man. Right. Right. Yeah. He's he's the fourth man. He's got to be the responsible one because those three (laughs) can't get together. Right. Right. And he plays that role very well with some sly references back to Takei, which is honestly the best way that you could have done that. I think Cho is perfectly cast here for that imagining of his role as the the level-headed competent one. And he gets to do some action, too. We get to see him and Kirk in an actual action sequence. Right. I really together. enjoyed that character. Let's see. So you've also got Anton Yeltsin. Which I asked you because you have said that you don't really care about Walter Koenig or Chekhov's role in a lot of these things. He was very welcome in this, <laughs> in this movie. So you did like Anton Yelchin's performance better. I did. I mean, this is ultimately a character, as you said just now, that I don't really care about. He is a functional member. And that's the other thing, right? Many of the original series episodes, he or Sulu are just not there. Right. And it's easier, especially because he wasn't there in season one, to really just think of him as a non-entity if you are inclined to do so, which I am. Anton Yelchin is really fun in this role. and He's I mean, so I th- awkward. Well, that's 
Right. So that's fun. It's like if Napoleon Dynamite was on the ship, <laughs> but like competent. A competent yeah. Napoleon Dynamite. I love when he's running down the halls yelling, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, that was great. It's comic relief, right? Because yeah. John Cho is going for a different kind of Sulu. So then you see Yelchin as the comic relief. What did you think about them playing up how young he is? Because uh, Chekhov, Chekhov's supposed to be the young kid, right. right? But he's actually 17 in this movie. Right. He's like the kid genius, I guess, who went yeah. to the academy early. They don't say all this, but it's kind of implied that that's what happened. Yeah, it's it's fun. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be anything more than that. That's what it is. So Zoe Saldana is Uhura. What did you think about her performance? She's doing good work. Keep her away from Spock. That's stupid. Like, Why don't you like their relationship? I'm just curious. I don't like it either, but <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But I know people like Ebony Elizabeth Thomas really like it. Well, that's fine. And 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 here's the thing. So you you kind of can't win, right? Because you cast Zoe Saldana. So it really seems like I can see, I can imagine somebody in production saying, Well, it'd be kind of a waste to get Zoe Saldana and not have her involved with somebody romantically. So I can see that as a problem. Yeah. I think they felt like with Uhura, they had to, and this is especially a dialogue with the original role where Uhura was very rarely, you know, seen as somebody other than a member of the flight crew, never had any of those really romantic shenanigans. And so this was a dialogue back with that. Uhura can bone. Right. I mean, and part of that was because, I mean, despite the first interracial kiss on television, which I know you have problems face smush, with. First interracial not face the, smush. Not the fact that it's interracial kiss that you have problems with. The fact, the way that it's presented, you have <laughs> a problem that with that's it. that's not a kiss. Right. <laughs> but despite all of that, I think they were running the risk of having yeah. a black woman be in relationships with other people on TV, especially since most of the crew was white. So this does seem like at least like, hey, we can have this character do more things than just answer telephone calls on the bridge, right? We can have her be a linguist. We can have her be like someone who Listen, gets good intel we paid and we can her, have her be in a relationship. We paid her good money to take Cameron's makeup off and do another role. We paid her good money to take Feige's makeup off and do another role. Let's use her. Right. Which, good instinct... This is the worst possible choice you could have made is to put her in a, a relationship. relationship with Spock. But I mean, as far as I think it is clever that they tried to tease us with Kirk at the beginning and then like switched it. And I've seen the second one. I obviously don't remember it. Haven't seen the third one. My hope for her is she gets a little more personality. Um, we know good and well. I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen Avatar. We will begrudgingly watch that again this year if Cameron comes through on his threat to release another one. But you think about her role as Gamora, the other space girl, <laughs> and she has a real character right? and a real character arc and gets to play the opposite of that because she gets to play a multiverse version of herself. We also don't get to see her do very much physically, which so yeah. Saldana is a very physical actor. Right. So I think she was largely wasted in this role. I think it's good casting, but I don't think they gave her the ability to do what she can do and then asked her to do something that was really just... Ugh. 
this is supposed to be the first time that all of these people are together on the Enterprise. And so a lot of this movie is about them, like, figuring out, like, how they work together and, like, what their personal relationships are going to be. Right. She hasn't settled into the telephone operator just completely knows everything that's going on in the ship ready to get the book out except she probably knows the language in this version eating eating chips in the background while all the stuff is happening on the bridge like you know like i I miss that side of uhura that i think nichelle nichols embodies so well but like you said, she is passable as Uhura. She, I mean, yeah. Zoe Zaldana is a great actress, and so I'd be interested in rewatching the other two movies to see what happens with her. And that's all of the new cast, old cast comparisons that we need to do. Sam. Tessa. I think you're forgetting someone. I don't think I am. We don't need to talk about any more comparisons. Okay, I know that you love James Doohan and his performance as Scotty. That's true. But he was recast in this, mainly because James Doohan was dead by the time that this movie came out. That is also true. Simon Pegg. Yes. What did you think of his performance as your fave Scotty? I mean, it was perfect, and that's why we don't need to talk about it. Oh, okay. You 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 actually liked it that much? Yeah, we don't need to talk about it because it's that good. I mean, it's it's Simon Pegg. I mean, that's kind of the point, right? It's just, I mean, basically, remember when you were a dimwit for Edgar Wright? You know how you're being Ethan Hunt's tech support? Just find the middle ground and do your best James doing. There you go. Yeah, dial that, up the overwhelmedness a little no bit. No more notes. No notes. That's it. Perfect cut, print, every time. One take peg is what they call him. And when he <laughs> and when he doesn't one take, he says, That's right. I just took you down another peg. Boom. Except for he says it in a British and then, accent. <laughs> and then Nick Frost jumps in and is like, Yeah. <laughs> Which they always have to edit out. They don't want to, but they do. We also got a she's given it all she's got, Captain. Yeah. He's having a good time. He's happy to show up for work. So we actually do have to talk a little bit about the plot of this movie. I know. Why? <laughs> We're unsure of, because I, I don't think you really picked up on this when you watched it the first time, because why would you again if you hadn't seen the rest of the series? But the whole idea of the Kelvin verse, I think, is a very clever thing that Orsi and Kurtzman did for this particular movie, because it frees them from the conventions of having to, like, figure out the timeline and and do things according to the way that the history had been laid out in the original series and in the films. So the basic idea of the Kelvin verse is that Nero, after the destruction of his planet Romulus in the future, is he's sucked into a black hole, comes out the other side, back in time, immediately confronts the USS Kelvin, which is a ship from the Federation, the first officer is Kirk's father. He becomes the captain in the last minutes of the ship because the original captain dies. He destroys the ship. Kirk's father sacrifices his life getting everybody off the ship. This changes history. That does not happen in the original timeline. So it creates this alternate reality that fans like to call the Kelvin verse. What do you think of this move on Abrams et al.'s part? 
First of all, I just want to say that I hope if they do a Star Trek 4, I assume this isn't in 3. If it is, I apologize. I hope it's in 4, though. That we have a scene where uh, they're playing a game. I don't know what the game is. It's really not important. But they're okay. playing a game on the ship. Three-dimensional chess. Well, no, 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 no. Not a game, like a sport. Oh. Like, and okay. they call it Kelvin Ball. <laughs> Huh? Okay. Kelvin Ball? All right. You, you, you get it. I do get you it. Because. And I'd like to point out that <laughs> Chris Hemsworth plays <laughs> the, Kirk's, the hottest parents of all time. Of course, Kirk has the hottest parents. Chris Hemsworth and Jennifer Morrison. What did we just see where it was talking about? Oh, it was uh, Belfast. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie, Jamie Dornan and Catriona yeah, yeah. Balfa. Yeah. That was a, Hottest that was parents a, of all time. Remember when we talked about the Oscar movies? Oh, that God. was cool. Anyway, I called it a reverse Superman, if you remember. Yeah, I do remember that. Because in Superman, they're trying to get the baby off the planet onto the ship. And in this, they're trying to get the baby off the ship to another ship so they can get him back to the planet. Yeah. You see. To me, this goes back to the Christian Slater thing from the last movie. I thought you were going to say go back to the Christian thing. No. So Star Trek is such a beloved franchise that people will actually just have cameos or they will just have little bit parts in it. Like even really big name actors like Chris Hemsworth was at the time amongst other people. I mean, that's how they got that's how they got Eric Bana to play Captain Nero, who is clearly a very generic one off villain. Yeah. (laughs) thoughts about the tattooed Romulan I just you know poor Eric Bana I just I wish dude had had I don't know maybe he's happy I I hope so but he was going to be big there for a while I, I believe he was in Munich which is one of the more problematic Spielberg films you haven't seen it I think you should and then, of course, he was, unfortunately, Hulk version 1.0. Yep. Ang Lee's Hulk, which I'm afraid to watch that movie again because I think it was okay. I'm really afraid to watch it again and be like, oh, no, I was wrong. Because <laughs> we, we watched The Incredible Hulk again. Is that what it's called? Is that the Ed Norton one? I don't know. No idea. But I think wa- so. It's bad. Yeah. Remember, it's we watched it again bad. and it's bad. Even Liv Tyler can't save that film. And normally <laughs> she can, for me anyway. She made Aerosmith cool for a while. I mean, that is really the ultimate. I'm sorry. If you're from Boston and you're listening to this, don't come beat me up. Anyway, the the poor Eric Bond. That's just all I had to say about that. Sorry, I talked about casting again instead of the plot of the movie. I I was about to actually mention also, I didn't mention her before in terms of famous actors who have bit roles, but Winona Ryder plays Spock's mom, Amanda. Look at that. Who has two scenes in this whole movie. Okay. Who dies, is fridged. Justice for Amanda. I don't know what else you've got in your notes, but let's be honest. Let's just be honest for a second here. This entire movie is set up to do more movies. Oh, yeah. This is a proof of concept movie. They're not actually doing anything. The only thing 
that they are doing other than doing proof of concept is saying, yeah, we did like Leonard Nimoy better than Shatner. That's why he's the one in this movie. Suck it, Shatner. (laughs) That is the only, I mean, you're introducing new people playing old roles. You're establishing the exigence for the films by creating this new universe, timey-wimey nonsense. And you're giving the finger to Shatner by giving Nimoy a nice send-off. I think there's nothing else happening in this movie. And that's okay. They're also telling us that by creating this Kelvinverse, this alternate reality, which the characters bring up several times once they figure out about the time travel part of it, they're telling us that anything can happen in the next few films as well. Because they destroy Vulcan. So they immediately do the exact same thing in the second movie. Good for them. Quick question about time travel. Yeah. Does Spock giving Scotty the code that he uses to transport them to a moving ship, the Enterprise, violate work theory? No, it doesn't because this is... Okay. So you have to go back to Interstellar for this. Which, granted, this movie came out first, I believe. It's true. So, Chris Nolan, I'm on to you. But Kip Thorne, I'm not on to you. You're a real physicist. Good for you. So here's the thing about that. Work, product, free lunch, grandfather, paradox, whatever you want to call it, is based on a single timeline theory. And so what we are being told is this is a branching timeline. If it is not a single, you know, single timeline, that is a different character and so the thing about it is is like the reason that he got away with it in four fastest pecker in the galaxy (laughs) is that he wasn't giving it to his own family line right he wasn't interfering with well it wasn't him either he said we don't know if he invented it or if he died well that's that's without communicating that's the point you're doing a thing without a reasonable certainty that it's going to happen That's how he got out of it in four. Picard, if you want to talk about a problem with the work product thing, Picard is the problem. I would just say this because I know you haven't seen The Next Generation, which is kind of hampering you watching season two of Picard. Q fixes everything. Like, if Q is involved, there's no no issues with any of this stuff. And that's fine. But... The bigger question here, so so it's not a problem because it's a different person he's given. It's like a different timeline he's in. Here's the thing you got to remember. Interstellar makes this very, very clear. Black hole equals different place. Mm-hmm. No rules. What they've done here and and what Nolan did after was did what they did in this movie, but tried to explain it using right. physics. <laughs> But basically, this movie says, once you go through a black hole, all bets are off. Okay. In Interstellar, we're being told that the black hole has the tesseract in the middle because it's a different dimensional space, which allows, which is the actual scientific explanation for timey-wimey stuff. This movie doesn't care. Went through the black hole. Yeah. Doesn't care about that. So no, it's not a problem. But speaking of Picard, I'm glad you actually brought that up because I think it's really interesting that this does get mentioned in the original timeline because Romulus is actually destroyed within Picard's lifetime 
And I at asked the beginning, you about that. yeah, at the beginning yeah. of Picard, the series, if you remember, <laughs> the I Romulans, don't. the Romulans are refugees, and Picard is basically telling the Federation, like, you didn't take care of these people, like they asked us for help, and like we didn't want to help them. Like Spock was the only one who tried. I, you know, I think at the time we started watching season two of Picard, about the only thing I could have told you was. Dude has a winery and the Borg cube is now a science experiment. <laughs> that was pretty much all I could have given you. Well, hopefully you'll know more after we watch TNG. Well, I mean, I think I'm going to remember more from this season because it was good so far anyway. Completely fair. The other thing I wanted to mention was just the sheer amount of references, especially to the films that you get in this. We do get some series references with Sulu Sword, like you said. We also get you. You're the one who pointed this out. Yeah. The scene on the ice planet is definitely. Yeah, we've seen this before. Very reminiscent of the library in all of our yesterdays. But there's a few other ones. Except too. Spock actually had to wait around this time. Yeah. And he also does say that I am and shall always be your friend. Like we get Nimoy doing yeah. greatest hits of Spock in this, which. Yeah, kind of like fan service. But at the same time, like. I don't think it's fan service. Sir- I think service it's, me. <laughs> I think it's Nimoy service. Yeah. What did you think about Nimoy well, in this? I guess I haven't even asked you about that. Nimoy could have said no. And he, he didn't. I don't think that Nimoy in his... Uh, okay. You could tell me that he was trying to financially provide for his kin, and I'm okay. But you cannot tell me, absent of that, that Nimoy, in his old age, about to die, cared about money. No, he cared he, about fans, though, he, like very famously right. cared about he them. He did this because he wanted to. And so I I don't see it as, I mean, it is fan service, and I, this whole movie's fan service. Right. But I really see this as Nimoy, let the guy do what he wants, and Shatner's not, going, not running around behind him yelling, me too, me too, which, by the way, he did. Because you remember, there was a bit about that. He was right. a little little sour grapes about that, but he got to go to space, so whatever. Shut up. I think yeah, Nimoy's but, doing great. But I it mean, it's fine. Uh, to me, it doesn't come across as cheap or or just well, no. like we're having him in here because he's one of the originals. Like I liked that he served an actual okay. story purpose. Compare that to Harrison Ford, who did not, to go back to Monkey, give a hooping funt. <laughs> Apparently, Harrison Ford is the ultimate this-is-a-job person. He does not give a single flying anything (laughs) about the roles that he does. He cashes his checks and moves on. Having Harrison Ford, we're home. I know, kid. It's just like bad fan service. I really hated it. I loved seeing him the first time. But it's kind of some phantom menace syndrome. The more times I see it, the more I'm like, you can, of course, compare that to what Hamill did with Ryan Johnson, which was new and fun. And that's not what Nimoy's doing. He's not doing either one of those things. He is doing, and he's certainly not a CGI walking corpse put together from scenes we shot for the last movie. No, that is his actual age that he's... That is a crime again. I just, like, in this this conversation about, like, dead actors coming to life in movies, I think the first rule should be, if you're going to do it, at least do it well. So I guess what I'm trying to say is we have three examples from... 
J.J. Abrams' other trilogy where they have done this fan service route and they have screwed it up every single time because, of course, they took Luke and Nine and just undid everything, right? This is the best way to do it because you had somebody, as you say, who truly cares about the fans and I have a real hard time believing anybody told him what to do unless he wanted to do it already. Right. So, I mean, this is really the best possible version of that. So well, good for them. And I like that, like you said, he's still playing this character and he still references these themes that we've been talking about in this entire podcast about him accepting yeah. who he is. And he imparts that to the Zachary Quinto Spock, to Kirk. Yeah, right? once I realized that that's what they were doing... I didn't decide that I didn't like what Zachary Quinto was doing, but I appreciated it. I understood what they were doing. Nimoy played his part. It was a lived in part. He knew what to do. It was smart. When he said you need Kirk, like you need this friendship, it didn't feel forced. It didn't feel like, oh, yeah, you need to do this because that's the franchise. It it felt like someone genuinely saying this person was so important in my life and you need him to be the best version of yourself. Well, if you if you want to go back to the id ego, super ego conversation that we've had before, this could be, you know, you can read this as that like you can't. Basically, you are going to be utter super ego dickishness if you don't have the id. And we've talked before on this podcast about is Spock a bad captain? Like, does he captain a and ship he is. well? Yeah, and, and he I is. think this movie also explores that. But that's, I mean, but that's the thing: the super ego should never be in charge. But if you let the id be in charge, nothing good's going to happen either. Right? <laughs> You've got to have both working together because the super ego has to govern the id, or at least mediate it. Right. It does feel a little far-fetched, I have to say, for Pike to just be like, yeah, let's promote this cadet right out of the academy to captain of the Enterprise. I don't care well, what he did. Well, you know you know, Conrad on The Resident, which is his other big role, that, that actor, he's, right. he's a really irresponsible leader there, too. So I believe it. You believe that. I believe it. I believe <laughs> you can cast that actor to play an irresponsible person in charge, and I will believe them because he has earned it, fair and square. The other reference. Do you think Matt Zachary could be in Star Trek? Wouldn't oh, that that'd be, be fun. That'd be fun. That would yeah. be fun. I'd watch that. The that's other- where he went after Rory said she was pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, that's it. I'm joining Starfleet. Joining what? To worry about Don't it. Don't worry about it. The other, some of the other references <laughs> I got, and I remember that I. Okay, so I'm going to tell you this. I was 19 when this movie came out. Okay. Okay. I was home on break for my first year of school. Uh huh. And I had already seen it. I already gone and watched it. Sure. But this family that I babysat for a lot when I was a teenager asked me to watch their kids while they went to go see it because they were big Star Trek fans as well. So I watched their kids. They were a handful. Not going to talk about it. I hated babysitting. Anyway. Can you imagine how miserable that experience would have been for people in the theater? You did a service to people that day. I did a service. Good job. Anyway, they came back and I was talking about it with the dad while while he was paying me. And uh, he said, (laughs) (laughs) he said, he specifically pointed out that scene near the beginning of the movie where Kirk is entering the shuttle to go to the academy and hits his head on the shuttle thing and he said that was payback for what they did to scotty in five where scotty hits his head on the on the thing and gets knocked out he's like somebody remembered that scene 
and how silly it was. Yeah. And called it back in I that like moment it. with Kirk. So can you do a can you do a star movie without somebody hitting their head though? That's a good point. There's also that visual gag where they rise through Saturn's rings, which is very Star Trek two. Right. With Wrath of Khan. So, you know, and there's the critter that's in Wrath of Khan that uh, mm-hmm. Nero puts in Pike's ear. There's references all over the place. But again, like you said, it doesn't feel like they're going like they're not being gimmicky about it. It's just this is part of the world. And of course, even though this is an alternate reality where anything could happen, it makes sense that there would still be things that sort of happen the same way or things that sort of happen out of order. Like that makes sense from like a time right. it's, line perspective. Well, you know, this is this is something that we we do in our non-podcast lives, right? Mm-hmm. These are these are all references. They're not they're not illusions. They're not necessary. We don't have to know what they are. But a lesser version of this movie would make all of those references, and they would be plot dependent references. That's the lesser version of this movie. I saw this movie the first time, thought it was perfectly fine, didn't get the references, but it didn't matter. That's the whole thing, right? We've talked about, can you bring somebody who's never seen the Fast and Furious franchise to the new Fast and Furious movie? I mean, sure. that's, that's the, right. That's what this conversation is. Could you have brought, does somebody need to have seen the three seasons? Or God forbid, almost 30 seasons. Or the five movies. Or God forbid again, the 10 movies. No, because I certainly hadn't seen I'd seen the whale movie. <laughs> and that was it. You know, if you're going to do references, that's the right way to do them. It's, it's like the whole, it's the whole Easter egg conversation. Right. Right. It's not fan service. We also it's there got, if you see it. We also got a JJ Easter egg, Greg Grunberg. He is the voice of, I he's think, Kirk's, Kirk's stepdad, I guess. But yeah. I know he's a JJ person. He's in that one he's episode in Force of Lost. Awakens. Yeah, he's, he's in a lot of things that JJ does. So that yeah. felt like its own thing right. in this movie. Welcome to the JJ verse. <laughs> I have to say, I know you said, is it a star movie if someone doesn't hit their head? Is it a Star Trek movie if we don't get a shot of the Golden Gate Bridge in the background at one point? What is their obsession with California? I know Starfleet is based in San Francisco. Right. It's been in like the last few movies and in Picard, they're in San Francisco at the beginning and then they go back in time to L.A. Do you want to know the answer? What? I have the answer. What's the answer? All right. So it's San Francisco, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And San Francisco is not a perfect city. It is the political birthplace of the man that Jorts calls haircut. But, Jorts. But here's the thing. We're not going to be alive much longer, the human race, right? Sure. Which is really, you know, that's kind of the narrative of Starfleet. But it's also like our real narrative. Unless somebody gets their act together. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. The reason San Francisco is always seen as the central place of that is because San Francisco embodies that hopeful future where we can be our better selves and somebody will take charge and say, now listen here, you can't destroy the planet. You can't destroy anybody. And it's going to be the gays. Thank you. Done. That's okay. why. It's have, the gays. It's the gays. So it's the it is gays. queer. It is queer. 
somehow. Our only hope for future survival is queer. And I am the 17th millionth person to say that. I was going to say, Jose Esteban Munoz. That's his whole thing. That's right. I have three things left on my notes here. And I just want you to know they don't make any sense to me. All right, let's do it. in, In terms of relation to each other. The first one is, why do they need so much damn red matter? Like, if a tiny little drop could destroy a planet and all Spock was trying to do was absorb a star that was exploding. It could have saved so much money on special (laughs) effects. It's this red matter. Why can't see it? Well, you don't need to. This little (laughs) amount can destroy a planet. Are you doing a flea circus? Could be. I don't know. Want to find out? No. I mean, it also goes back to the fact that Starfleet is generally a safe place to work. Captain Nero's <laughs> ship is not. Captain Nero and the Romulans apparently... OSHA. The number of times Tessa mentioned OSHA. They apparently <laughs> subscribe to the Star Wars methodology of shipbuilding. Which is, there's so many places to fall. Listen, if we had time to build railings, we wouldn't need the warship. <laughs> My second one is Tyler Perry gives Kirk the medal at the end, which I, was, I didn't even recognize him at this was, point. Wait a minute. Now, I've only seen the man a half dozen times without Medea makeup on, <laughs> but that is Tyler Perry. And lo and behold, it was. So continuing the tradition of famous people just wanting to be in Star Trek. Yeah, well. And then finally, as you pointed out, it is significant that Leonard Nimoy is the one who does the monologue, the Star Trek monologue at the end. Kirk usually does it. Nimoy did do it at the end of two, but Kirk did it at the end of six. So what you're saying is this, that Nimoy gets to read the, the voiceover at the end when he dies. Well, he doesn't die at the end of the 2009 Star Trek. Well, he's going to. Well, eventually, sure. Everyone's going to die eventually. Well, he symbolically dies because okay, we don't sure. see him again. Right. So that's just a he thought. He didn't really die at the end of two either. That's just a thought. So, But yeah, it is it is a passing off of the torch right. to the new, the new kids. Right. Anyway, it was very emotionally affecting for me. Wouldn't it be cool if Gal Gadot was in number four? Eh. I mean, just like in a bit role. Not replacing Anton Yelchin. That's oh, kind of she, actually the. She had better not. That is kind of the polar Yelchin. opposite of what it should be. We are definitely going to talk about Anton Yelchin. That was the other thing about this yeah. movie, watching it, is that it was bittersweet. Not only seeing Nimoy and knowing he's dead and thinking about all the other Star Trek actors that are dead, but also seeing Anton Yelchin, who also died tragically a few years later. And this was my first real exposure to him as an actor, was seeing this movie. Well, I think it was most people. Yeah, fantastic actor, brilliant in a lot of his other films as well. But we'll talk about that later. So overall, what do you think about this new Zip Bang Star Trek? That's the... It, it, it's apt, is it not? It is. It's much better than... First of all, Zip Bang Star Trek. At least as good as Kelvinverse. Definitely better than the Lens Flare trilogy. <laughs> so, I think he backs off on the Lens Flare in the next one a little bit. Just like a little uh, bit. I mean, we're not blind, so I guess so. <laughs> I um, I call it the Zip Bang Star Trek franchise movie, franchise of movies, because it is more action forward. 
than the original series and the movies. And that's not to say there isn't action in those because there are. It's very slow. It's plotting. It's cut away from from Shatner for a second. That is a totally different dude throwing a punch. Right? <laughs> it's not the action. We weren't doing action like this well, back in the 60s. But that's the point. Like the action is a means to an end. Like it's a storytelling device we need to get from point A to point B. Oh no, he wandered into the engine room for the 15th time this season and got jumped. And when I say 15th time, it's the third time in this episode. <laughs> J.J. Abrams brings the action front and center as a meaningful part of it. And for what it's worth, didn't screw it up. That's high praise coming from you. J.J. Abrams didn't screw something up in this movie, except for all the things he did screw up, but he didn't screw up this one. So, next up on Sam Watch's Star Trek, we are doing Star Trek Into Darkness, in which Benedict Cumberbatch plays a character who is definitely not con. He's definitely not con. Definitely not con. No. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. And you can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Until next time, live long and prosper. Zip. Bang. <laughs>